Uh, my name is Mike Sellers. Uh, I am the director of the game design program at Indiana University, where I'm a professor of practice. Prior to joining Indiana University, uh, I was a, a game dev. I guess I still consider myself one. Uh, for something over 20 years, uh, published my first video game in 1996. Uh, uh, excuse me, Meridian 59. MMO. Uh, prior to that, Nine, sorry. Uh, before that, I was a software engineer and user interface designer. And then since then, I've worked on and free to play and mobile and other kinds of games, as well as doing uh, some work in artificial intelligence to make more sociable NPCs. I, I'm not particularly interested in having NPCs shoot better as much as uh, more easily. So, and then four years ago, I started at Indiana University. Um, and they're trying to sort of train up the next generation, I guess. Nice. So you've been teaching for four years now. That's yeah. an entire student's academic career. <laughs> Odd, actually, because the, the freshman that I came in with just graduated. And yeah. uh, you know, a little, a little bit of me was like, no, don't go. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, now I, you know, I'll, I'll have been there forever as far as, as the students are concerned. Um, so how did you get into teaching? Like, how did that turn, how did that come along in your career path? I've always been interested in, in teaching. I just, I enjoy it. Um, and, um, in, in artificial intelligence, and I had an opportunity to teach an online class for a Swedish university. Um, at the time now it's part of Uppsala University. And still teach actually, uh, once a year, a game AI class line um, teaching uh, over the years uh, when I was a consultant I did some seminars and things like that and I had always kind of had my eye on being able to go into academia for teaching and research the games industry of course is that it's fairly high pressure and and tends to be fairly focused on you know the next release the next quarter the ability to do some things that were going to take a little bit longer um, or have at least a longer view I actually took about 10 years to sort of set all this up in terms of doing the online teaching. I did some uh, research that I was able to, to get uh, published in a peer-reviewed journal, did a bunch of conferences, that sort of thing. Just to set the whole thing up, uh, was in the process, was actually very early in the process of uh, just sort of say, okay, maybe it's time to start looking. And a friend of mine said, you know, I just kind of went to him for, for advice. And uh, he said, hey, if you're really interested, let's talk, because this is a guy who still, still teaches at IU, uh, and starting the, a serious conversation about putting together a game design program. These things where everything came together. Um, the timing was right for them, and for me, I have a, another game, another job, and I said, this is terrific. So um, that was, you know, well, that was a few years ago, I guess. Um, that's neat. So you built up your resume slowly, and then by the time you were ready to make the jump, you were all ready. Yeah, I mean, so I don't have a PhD, and um, I knew that was going to be a problem. Do you have a master's uh, Just in terms of, I have a bachelor's in cognitive science um, oh. from okay. a long time ago, <laughs> back, when, back when I had to explain to people what it was. Um, but no, yeah, I, yeah, and, I and to... so you need you need a graduate degree usually in order to be like a professor in a university, for example, right? Exactly. You typically need what's called a terminal degree, um, so a, a PhD, uh, sometimes a Master of Fine Arts or MFA. Um, sometimes you get by with a master's, but really you need the, the, a PhD to be a professor. And I knew that was going to be a difficult thing. I also had a, I still have a thing about uh, people teaching game design who have never made games. Uh, and and those those two things don't really go together because until recently weren't any PhDs in game design, um, and very very few people who had a PhD in anything and who had actually made games or had any you know, depth of experience in it. Um, it was important for me to to join a program where I could really contribute and at, at, with Indiana's program and and really help define it from the very beginning. Um, or the program was so that I could uh, 
so I could do that. So I could be part of that creation process. Myself, I knew it was going to take some unusual circumstance for me to be able to get into academia without a PhD. And so I thought, you know, how do I go about getting a PhD or things fell out this way. And so it worked pretty well. Yeah. So uh, it turned out that you did not have to spend those years getting a degree. Uh, you just managed to get in anyway. Is that how it worked? I mean, because I've had, you know, 20 years experience as a game designer and, and have a, a, a pretty good resume that way and and have done some research. That was the other thing. In terms of the people at the university, they wanted to see that I wasn't just an industry person. That was important too, but that I could as intellectual, I think you put it. Um, um, that, yeah. you know, that, that's where the, the position of the professor of practice comes from, is you have people who are, who are in new emerging areas and who don't have a PhD um, and yet have something to contribute. Yeah, I feel toy with the idea of getting a PhD, but I don't know that I ever will at this point. Uh, yeah, there's been a lot of conversation, uh, especially at GDC during the Education Summit over the years, about that limitation of like, like how do you make game degree programs better? Like, well, you should hire more industry people. Well, well, but then you run into the problem of industry people often don't have graduate degrees. Many don't have any degrees. <laughs> uh, and and yeah, so it turned into like this chicken and egg problem and. They've been mainly advocating for towards uh, just like loosening those requirements among the uh, academia level, like so that at these academic institutions maybe like not be so strict, at least for certain roles, or at least be more open to having like I don't know if you need a graduate degree just to be like a lecturer, for example. Um, well, you do, um, yeah. but although we've set it up here so that we can hire lecturers with only a bachelor's or potentially no degree. If they have what's called tested experience, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I kind of knew a lot of that going in, and this is one of the things people don't really like to talk about with academia. But um, lecturers often have well, less status, is one way to say it, than professors. They have less opportunity to research and, and things like that. And I really didn't want to go in as a as a lecturer because it would it would be more difficult for me to to. Um, help grow the program and you know, create the program I wanted to see and grow it and do the kind of research I wanted to do. Um, setting myself up somehow to, to go in as a, as a professor. Um, the kind of position I have is pretty unusual still, but not unique. I mean, there are other people who are professors of practice situation. Man, you really have a lot of like vision for your career as an academic. <laughs> Like well, you know, not just not just the teaching part, but also like getting into the research and like building up the the, the program itself, which makes sense because that's your job title now, uh, director of the program. Uh, a big believer in having a five year plan, always sort of a rolling five year plan for what what comes next, especially building a career in games. The company you're working for today may not exist tomorrow. Yeah, but I think it's just healthy in general to have like a five year plan, and and oddly. You know, came to IU, got to teach him the class I wanted to teach, wrote a book. So I wrote a, a game design textbook. And that checked off most of the boxes, almost all the boxes I had on sort of my five-year plan. So I had this moment of like, I have the job I want. I, you know, I've, I, you know I've, I've, I've been a CEO and I've been a creative director. I've done a thing, a lot of those kinds of things. So I've done these things already. So kind of what's next? And that's an interesting position to be in. Awesome. Course, I was I was able to find a couple of big projects that have been bubbling in the back of my head for a long time, and so I'm 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 well into them now. That's pretty neat. So I wanted to ask you a bit more about your early career. So how did you first get involved in the games industry? Um, so this was in the early '90s when CD-ROMs were just becoming big, and the internet was just becoming big. Because a lot of people weren't even on the internet even then. Um, as the uh, user interface consultant, so designing user interfaces for medical and, and scientific and some um, office software. Um, you know, I designed the user interface for a Xerox copier, and this is this is kind of an odd one, but you know those those defibrillators you see in the airport with the heart and the lightning bolt sign on them? 
the original yeah. work on that is mine from like 1992 or 1991. It's like portable defibrillators. Yeah, so they, they came to me. I had done a bunch of medical and scientific work, and they said, we have this problem where we, we have this product we want to make. What do you do if you, you, you're, you're at an airport, so you're not trained, you're in a public place, someone's having a heart attack. If you can use this thing, you can save someone's life. To use it as an untrained person with just a few seconds while someone is dying in front of you. So very, very high-stress situation. So it sounds, it sounds a little strange, but as a user interface problem, that's really cool, <laughs> you know, because it's a it's a difficult problem to to uh, to tackle. Um, so this there's is a lot of purpose behind that problem too. Um, like I I've done not things like that before, but like uh, I did the first second year, but I did the first three um, D visualization system to be used by brain surgeons in the operating room. Um, and got to see it used on a five-year-old girl, uh, saved her life. You know, it was a kind of an amazing thing. And yet, I the place I was in, I, I couldn't, the fact that I was doing literally life-saving work, uh, <laughs> which was odd. Anyway, I, I went out and became a, a user interface consultant and watching um, the game space evolve or sort of emerge. And I'd been playing games for, I wrote a, paper role-playing system in the mid-80s. Um, and so my, my brother and I were doing some work together and started saying, hey, you know, the CD-ROM thing looks like it's really taken off. Let's look at what we can do. And I'd been playing a lot of MUDs. And I said, you know, what if we could do a 3D MUD? We sure have actually really, really, like, almost hypercard. Like, it wasn't 3D to begin with. Um, doing it where we, the idea was we would assemble the, scene components on the server, send them down to the client, and then, and then assemble them on the client so the player could, could see them there. Very, very uh, primitive by today's standards at the time. Um, and so that was 93, 94. One team on a prototype for it, they completely flamed out. It was a, that's a whole other story. And uh, kind of rebooted our company. We started a little company by this point. And uh, 94, uh, started working on this, uh, hired a, a couple programmers and some other designers. I missed hiring Raph Koster by one week. <laughs> I him only online, and I, I offered him a job, and he had taken the job with Origin the week before to do what ultimately became Ultima Online. So That's, um, that's funny. Company, and we... We launched the alpha for that game December 15th, 1995. Had a, a capacity of 35 people at a time, which was huge. Uh, what was the name of the game again? Meridian 59. Right. It was uh, And then we sold the company in uh, June of 96 to 3DO, uh, and they published the game in September. Very successful for its time. It was... It was um, most successful game that that company had, actually. Fantasy Game of the Year, a bunch of other things. Um, I, I say it that way only because, to me now, so much time has gone by, it's a little bit like, I don't know, celebrating a, a, a medal you got in late 1800s or something. <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. a very long time ago. It's important context, too. It's like, yeah, it might not be a household name these days, but it still accomplished a lot back then. We did this on a, on a shoestring budget. Um, by that, I mean our total budget was about $220,000. How, how long was development? Let's see. Uh, really got rolling in mid before, I guess. And so about, so about a year, about a year of really serious development. And then uh, that got us to Alpha, uh, which was actually, you know, a pretty strong Alpha, actually. And then we were in a, a good beta by March of 96 before we could release the game. I don't know if people remember 3DO or not. They, had a, they were a major console company. They had a really high-end console um, to uh, branch out into Internet gameplay as well. Uh, and we were their, their first foray into that area. Uh, and then, uh, so after that game did pretty well, what were what was the next steps for that company? 
we sold the 3DO, and about so uh, the CEO stood up in the middle of a, a company meeting and said he decided that the internet wasn't going to be very big for uh, gaming after all, and so they were going to close down the internet division, which was alarming to some of us. A lot of us in the internet division. Anyway, uh, my brother and another guy who had uh, my brother Steve, another guy named John, uh, with the three of us had been the three principals, Archetype Interactive, and we went off and formed a second company, the Big Network. Early social networking. This is '97 now, so really early. Um, it was really sort of family-oriented games and social networking, and then uh, this is long before. Or MySpace or anything like that. In, in fact, there's a... Yeah, that was like American was, Online days, right? From, from AOL, yeah. Yeah. Um, but the idea, the, sort of the high concept pitch for our for our company actually was that if I wanted my kids to go... My, if my kids wanted to go online and play a game in AOL, AOL chat room, so if they could go on and play with their cousins in a private game room or with friends from school or things like that, they could do so in a safe environment. That's That's part of what... What our uh, product uh, provided. That company in '99, uh, and later uh, became the basis for uh, at least parts of MySpace. They used our our user interface and part of our server architecture, which was kind of interesting. I went to to Electronic Arts at that point to to Maxis, and uh, worked uh, led led. I was a lead designer on SimCity Online, which very quickly became The Sims 2. Came out and was a monstrous hit. No one anticipated the kind of hit that game was. And then, so I, I worked on The Sims 2, uh, led the design on that for uh, a couple years, I guess. Uh, then went down to Austin, uh, was lead designer on Ultima Online, and started my own company uh, to do AI work. I was convinced in 2002 that C's better AI was going to be the wave of the future. <laughs> It's just taken a lot longer to get here than uh, than any of us thought. In 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 the early mid two thousands, you couldn't sell AI for anything, uh, which is kind of, you know, funny slash distressing now that given how popular it is. Yeah, especially uh, with but, machine learning and like Google's latest announcements have been literally like everything AI in everything. <laughs> I should say too that that um, John, the guy who was our our other partner, um, went on to form a company called Keyhole Interactive, which later became Google Earth. Antic. So he's the guy who's running Pokemon Go. Oh, he's done. That's neat. Anyway, so then so I ran that company. That company was Online Alchemy in in uh, the one I started in Texas. Um, years. Uh, and then um, closed it down. Unfortunately, it was a you know difficult thing to do. And then joined uh, a company called Kabam that was making mobile games, free-to-play games. So I learned an awful lot about the free-to-play sector. Years um, went to a company uh, called Rumble Entertainment that was doing um, free-to-play Facebook role-playing games. To Indiana University. Yeah, the, the free-to-play wave was like, I guess, mid-2010s, right? That's in, uh, yeah, so I, let's see, I joined, that's when I joined Kabam. It was really picking up. I mean, it was, it was the business was crazy at the time. Um, 2010 through about 2013, and, uh, you know, it's, I mean, it's still going. We still have play games than any other kind of game right now and, and far more money being made there. Like EA, you know, trying their loot boxes and stuff like that, it's been a little more uh, difficult to uh, than it has been in the past. It's like games making an awful lot of money and at Kabam, um, they made a lot of money. One of the things I did at Kabam was I ran a game called Realm of the Mad God but they had purchased the game, and then after a few months after purchasing it, handed it to me and said, um, either make it profitable or kill it. And so later we got an extension on that, and we're able to... Um, so it was kind of a real experimental thing, like 
here's this interesting game. The, the fans love it. Uh, and we were able to do so without uh, – people got annoyed. We didn't piss off too many people. Um, but but we did some, some interesting things to, to make that game make money. And then uh, are you getting – are you approaching the point where you are now getting into academia at this point? So after Kabam, I was a general manager at Kabam, and then I went and was a creative director at Rumble Interactive. Um, Rumble was having some troubles, and I was looking sort of what's the next gig, because that's a – I at least was always asking myself. And I kind of had this feeling just for me personally where I was in my career of, do I want to get back on the merry-go-round and go around one more time with another company, or do I want to – and finally make the jump to academia. Um, and I had a company that was looking very good that I was talking with, and I, I think we would have done very well together. It was the time then to, to go to, to, uh, to academia. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, I guess I shifted my sights at that point to, and then I took a couple years to write a book. And uh, now I'm finally, finally, finally getting back into uh, some more um, advanced game design and programming, trying to to get back to the AI stuff that I talked about before. Some um, some packages like there's a there's a, a company called Improbable.io that has a, a some software called Spatial OS that I think is very interesting. That I hope we'll see to really revitalize the virtual world and MMO space. And make it so it doesn't cost a hundred million dollars to make one of those things anymore. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's interesting. Uh, so added, I don't know, half a dozen more uh, different years that have said, you know, we'll do the whole thing. We'll be the server. We'll be your client. We'll give the. Tools. I think I, I might have spoken to them on the GDC Expo floor. <laughs> we <laughs> or may did have they? There. Um, yeah. But this is the first group I've seen that's really made sense that in, in what they're doing. I've, oops, and, and kind of taking a deep dive into the technology. And this is the first one that, oh, you may have really finally solved this kind of in the way it needs to be solved, in a way that's going to make sense. The, one of the cool things they've done is um, you just work in or anything like that. Um, and then it's a cloud-based server. So you upload your and uh, you know, they charge you based on, on essentially not quite CPU usage, but programming or amount of you know, resources that are required for your game. Really expandable based on you know, however big you want your world to be. So um, they've got a couple of games up now that other people have made and more are coming along. And it, looks, uh, it looks really interesting. If it holds up, and and you know, we'll hope. I'm excited. I hope it does. It looks like it will. But if it holds up, it's the kind of thing that takes a whole bunch of and financial considerations off the table in terms of making an MMO, and then puts the focus right back on. Okay, so what is the game design? Really interesting because MMOs got so expensive and so risky. Being an MMO design anymore, especially after WoW. I mean, there's. Crowfall is going to be coming out hopefully this year, and and uh, seems pretty interesting. The same kind of audience that have played MMOs before, and I'm interested in in how how can we make games that are going to do some new things and some some different things that we haven't seen before, or certainly in MMOs. You have to reduce the amount of cost and risk that you have from the technology, and that's hard to do. Act it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I also wonder if it works out for them because the, I guess the MMO space has been getting pretty crowded, but that also means that that market, like the market of people making MMOs, is technically proven, and so, and so it kind of potentially is a good sign for them. I think it's a very good sign, and and MMOs have been pattern, I think, so ever since WoW became super, super successful and then kind of fell off and 
you know, EVE Online has been out there and has been plugging along, and there have been a lot of smaller MMOs that have been coming up, but nothing is really thing new. There's there's a lot of, um, if you go on Reddit, for example, an MMO uh, subreddits for, okay, what's the new thing? What's What can we do that's going to be new and different? I certainly remember with Meridian, you know, our game, Ultima Online, uh, Asheron's Call, Dark Age of Camelot, EverQuest, the really early games, there was a real sense of wonder of like, this is amazing. What what could possibly happen next? Yeah, real innovation. Yeah, yeah. And, um, uh, you know, when they made WoW, they really knew what they were doing and they, they weren't trying to innovate. And they were very smart about that. They were just trying to um, polish what they knew worked. They did, you know, polish to a bright shine. So it works really well. You can argue that that in itself is a form of innovation. <laughs> Take what uh, yeah. works and actually maybe good. I mean, <laughs> there, I mean, there's there's different there's business innovation and there's sort of production innovation. I would call that. Yeah, they they knew they were very focused and very disciplined about what they did. You know, just for me, for for the kinds of things I like to do, I want to try something new. So, you know, my hope we'll see what happens, but my my hope is that I'll be able to put together a test bed for a, a game that involves uh, you NPCs to go back to the AI stuff, going interacting with NPCs who aren't just vending machines. And this is something that I've been on about for years and years now. But the idea that you have um, not because you've got a bunch of pre-made quests, but because you're interacting with a bunch of non-player characters who have their own things going on and you can choose to be part of it or not. And if you do, then that, that will lead to new things going on in the world, but they aren't just, oh, now do this quest chain. A risk yeah. <laughs> a, a, a less mechanical way to interact with NPCs. The downside of this is that players like to know this quest line, and it's going to have these are the kinds of things I'm about to do. The, the assurance of that, but at the same time, it really sucks the life out of the game because mechanical and it really reduces the player's role to mechanical one in that you know it's it's go get 10 rat tails or 10 or whatever it is um that the whole game is sort of reduced that level and so the players are just reduced whole game is just less interesting um other than i mean it becomes a a really heavy idle game or heavy clicker game in a way uh, but it, it's not it's not really that different in terms of the design. So some things that are uh, different and and uh, that will fail horribly in some regards. but So with the MPC problem, um, have you looked into like the first thing that I think of as far as making a, a more dynamic MPC system? Uh, where the NPCs are like their own characters, they might follow their own lives. The first thing that comes to mind is board games. Like, if you like, the thing with board games is you only get a few actual clues as to like what an entity is doing, and then it's up to the players to like fill in the blanks with their own interpretation and their own story. I was wondering if you ever considered something like along those lines as being part of the solution to that. There's a number of different that uh, I certainly am, am big on board games. Um, I'm, I'm actually working on a board game too. Um, sort of similar in that it's, I mean, it, in terms of the story side of it, it it's about, about building a, a town together. So not together building the same town, but they all have their own goals as well. So they're working with each other and against each other. But there's also NPCs in the game, family members that you have, Watching players play the game, they really imbue the the the, the NPCs with a lot of uh, humanity. Yeah. They grow old and die. You know, they grow up, they grow old, they die throughout the game. You know, you have someone who dies because they drowned when they were a child, or they died of you know in a house fire when they were you know an, an older person. Oh, you know, don't I told you stay away from the water. Oh no, you drowned. It's very light role playing, but it definitely helps 
humanize the game quite a bit. I think there's a lot of things we can do there with NPCs and, and board games that, and then we can also transfer over to, to video games as well. And the interesting thing about The Sims is that it's always like taking those kinds of NPC simulations and wrapped it up in a, like a very toy aesthetic. Like, yeah, all these silly things are happening and it's not actually trying to tell a real story. And I was wondering if you were more leaning towards like being, being able to tell better stories. Yes and no. <laughs> so okay. one of the reasons I started my company, Online Alchemy, was because I was so frustrated with the Sims AI. On the, the Sims AI and the Sims 2 AI, I didn't have anything to do with three and four, but um, since then, but the AI was incredibly frustrating. Uh, it was a very thin layer of plausibility that was very easy to get past. Situation that that we used to talk about a lot was slap situation, where if you have three Sims, A, B, and C, um, Carl and Al and Betty are married. Fucks up and slaps Betty because she's been programmed to cry. That's her only response to being slapped. Al, her husband, is standing right there and does nothing at all, just stands there and whistles. And, and the reason is because the Sims had no uh, awareness of what was going around them, what they called situational awareness. Um, so, you know, that was one of the early problems we worked on really hard is could we make the Sims more aware of their surroundings and it be very difficult to do. And there were a lot of other uh, similar where it just was really frustrating. So one of the things I wanted to do was to make AI that would not react that way. So AI that we that we ended up making with uh, DARPA, the idea behind the project, we have projects plural, because we have a DARPA, was um, to make training simulations. As one of the DARPA guys said once, that the idea is to teach soldier, soldiers how not to shoot people. Interacting with other people. Way, um, so um, our AIs were very emotional. They 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 made uh, decisions based on their emotions. They could uh, tell you things that uh, that were important to them. That that sort of thing. The idea was always to take this back to to regular games and to say, okay, with with NPCs walking around doing their thing. What kinds of things might you encounter? And if you can, if you can work with an NPC, their goals, would that feel like a story to you? We had back then were very positive that that author a story for the player to see it as a story. If it if it looks like it's a meaningful thing that's helping somebody else, even though somebody else is an NPC, players will perceive it as a story and, and make it valuable as a result. So that's the kind of place where I'm, I'm taking off my work right now that's me so it's like you worked on this the problem with the sims and it turned into like a bug that you just couldn't like get out of your head <laughs> bugs like that there are some yeah I mean, there's a bunch of them um the early sims ai um these calculations about what the sims want to do next what particular sim wanted to do next and then it would build a list of these and it would just choose one of the top three at random. You could have a sim who was starving to death and they would suddenly decide, I'm going to go off and go to bed. It's like, no, you're yeah. starving. You should go eat. Um, there were lots and lots of things like that that we encountered um, and just a really difficult programming environment. And, you know, I, 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 I'm not familiar with the, the later Sims AI, but, uh, you know, or I haven't seen from the inside, but my understanding is it's, it's changed quite a bit and, and improved quite a bit. I'm, I'm sure it has. Um, yeah, after, but still, I think we have a, a long way to go. To close that one thought was in terms of MMOs, single player game with, with NPCs in it like that is, is cool enough. But if I could make a world where running around doing their thing and you could help them or not, you know, or hinder them or whatever. That to me starts to really feel like the promise that MMOs had, where you you feel like you're entering a living world. I'll say too, this is yeah, the first season of Westworld, and and really enjoyed 
enjoyed it for a lot of reasons. I mean, the AI was was pretty cool, but discovered, and I'm not going to give you spoilers for those who haven't seen it. But when I discovered that the 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 hosts, the NPC characters, you know, they they showed them like doing the same thing every morning. I I couldn't take it. <laughs> it was it's like no, that is not how you do this. You have them living their lives and not running the same exact path every morning. That that just felt to me like a big throwback to uh, uh, to where we are now or where we've been in the yeah. past with, with MMOs. I guess from a storytelling perspective, they just wanted to find some way to remind the viewers that yes, these people are robots or AIs. And that's what they—that's what the writers picked, even though it wasn't true to the core idea. I, th- I think there's something to that from a from a TV uh, storytelling standpoint. It'd be it'd be much more difficult to tell a story, a coherent story, if the NPCs were really doing their own thing. But you know, that's part of the uh, the the great thing about making games is it doesn't have to be watchable like TV. It just has to be playable, and that's a very different thing. So how did you uh, get into? Uh, so when when you were working with DARPA, did that did that turn into research, or was um, it some, some other? So I was able to publish. Um, so we did a lot of, of really original work, and they they gave us a lot of room to to try some. I, I had to go up to to the DARPA headquarters in DC numerous times to do like a. You know, report to, to say here's here's our here's our status here's how we're doing. And the cool thing was I got to sit in and watch other people do the same thing. And a bunch of mad scientists, uh, a lot of the people who who do cool work for for DARPA, and there was some very cool stuff. Uh, but then publicly and some which hasn't. But uh, uh, in our case, I was able to take the work that I'd done and um, papers on it uh, in in different conferences and and proceedings uh, in, in journals, I should say. Um, so I've got a, a probably the biggest, believable, well, definitely the biggest paper is um, the uh, um, the architecture of emotions and the architecture of emotions both for, for animals, you know, seeing making one single architecture that you can describe human emotions, uh, animal emotions, and artificial emotions, same architecture. And that was I published that in 2013. And uh, it's still relevant, still gets cited. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of surprised it's it's lasted as long as it has, but that's an area that people haven't really dug into a whole lot. I, overall, everyone you know went over to machine learning, which I, I did some early, early work in machine learning in the 80s and early 90s, and that was very cool stuff. Um, but it wasn't what really interested me. So... Um, you know, maybe I I I, uh, I didn't take the more profitable approach, <laughs> but but uh, you got to do what what creatively what what interests you. Um, what I've done is has remained current, and and that's what I'm building on now. Um, uh, just a reminder, it's on the chat. If you want to ask any questions, you can either unmute and speak up, or you and just break in at whatever time, and or you can also just type it in the chat in the Ask Me Anything chat. Uh, so when you wrote your your textbook, uh, did you write that? You 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 already said that you wrote that before you got into teaching, right? Oh no, after. Oh, um, after. Okay. Yeah. So I was. Um, I had. Um, uh, a year, um, gosh, year or so of teaching. Anyway, I mean, no, during my first year of teaching, I, I started teaching a new class on um, design and and using systems thinking and game design, and it was a really new area um, where there. So, I was kind of teaching by the seat of my pants. Wanted to try and figure out. Yeah, you know, I kind of I kind of figured out this is what I've been doing for a long time. How do I talk about it? And so I started teaching a class every year. And after, I guess, the second time I taught it, I really, I just need to write this down as a book because there was no textbook for this. I was teaching at this point, it was, it was an advanced game design class. And uh, there, was, there was very little written on systems design. So 
Um, some a lot of preliminary work, I guess. Talked to a lot of people. Ended up writing it all up as a book. Um, took that's, me. That's pretty neat. So you you actually that had the benefit of being able to write the book from the perspective of literally as a tool to help teach the class. Help teach the class and and just more generally, I think I hope help game designers think about designing games from a more unified perspective. And, you know, I I, I think yeah. that my, my I guess my big thesis is that that uh, games are systems, and if you look at them and 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 being a system, it, it's it clarifies a lot of design issues. Um. It, it makes game design easier, uh, or at least you can, I don't know, not not more difficult. I'm not sure if it ever really gets easier. But, it gives um, you a better handle on a lot of problems. Yeah. Um, yeah, so and so I've been, my students have been able to use that now for a couple of years. You know, I beta tested it with uh, a round of students before, um, uh, before we published it. And the book was published uh, last December, long really. Um, but it's already getting picked nice. up at, at different schools, and uh, and a lot of game designers are using it. That's great. Do you have any ideas for future books to write? <laughs> well, I, I've got a few. Yeah, I mean, whenever I have an idea like that, it kind of pops in my head, and I'll write it down. I've actually been doing some work on follow-on in a way to the, the work I did in in this first book on emergent gameplay. I think there's a lot there, a lot more that we could be doing with with emergent gameplay than than we are doing. And part of the reason is that it's really hard to talk about. We we have a hard time emergence is and and how to get a kind of get a how to get a handle on it. And some other good stuff written on it, but not from the point of view of games. Um, and I think that games bring something the way that the player interacts with the game to change the game, which changes the player and that in itself creates a whole new emergent system. So making emergent gameplay within that thing area. Yeah. Anyway, so that's something I've, I've got some on that I will be uh, uh, subjecting my students to this fall. You know, uh, one of the great things about having students is they, they, they have to listen to you whether, whether they like it or not. So I forget the name, but I think there's a school, a game program in New York, in the New York area that, they emphasize emergence a lot. Uh, like they do. Uh, you're probably thinking of the Parsons School at NYU, but uh, or RIT, either one. I, I think um, it was NYU that I was thinking of. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's a, a, a lot of people who who think very hard about this and who try and get emergent gameplay into their games as much as possible. Like, I mean, Eric Zimmerman is at NYU, and he's a, a, a terrific at, at getting at creating situations that. That yield, um, you know, from which emerging gameplay arises, I guess, is one way to say it. To oh yeah, and um, Bennett Foddy is there too. What's that? Bennett Foddy is there, and he's like good people there. Yeah, infamous um, for emergent game mechanics. I don't think we know uh, or haven't articulated it well enough. Um, like, what is it that makes something emergent? How do we know when it's emergent? What characteristics of that and there's a bunch of examples you can point out and there's things from other areas of, of other different kinds of of non-game literature uh, but uh, not a whole lot there's been some stuff written in games but but I think there's there's more that could be there so that that may end up being a book it may not um, uh-huh. and, yeah especially uh, to tie it into like how exactly does emergent stuff fit into I guess your existing theories you're using uh advanced game design perspectives that's that's part of it is that, that the perspective i take on on game design overall is very systemic which um so very systems driven rather than being like level or content driven and that leads to there um but it's still very hard to get to and and hard to or the other people. And so what I find is when I know there's something that's important, but it's hard for me to articulate it well so the student can understand it, that's that's a good time to write something down. How do we talk about this? Um, um, 
you know, like there has been a lot of good stuff written, and maybe this will become a book. Maybe it won't. I've got I've got enough projects. So my my concern now is that I'll I'll never get all the all the ideas, all the projects done that I I want to get done. Yep. You know, that's, that's a, a good concern to have. It's the ultimate life of a creative person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. Um, so you have a, a lot of students, and now you've said that the first batch of freshmen that you that were there when you arrived that have now graduated. I wanted to ask about how you think about in regards to preparing your students for the workforce, basically. Uh, so, like, how, like, what are what are the main things that your program does to? prepare your students to work in the games industry? This is one of the main things we started talking about uh, when we first started constructing the program was I was coming from industry and I had been out of, out of school before and had not had great experiences with it, honestly. I, don't, I think that most of our game design programs still don't do a very good job of preparing people for working in industry. So I didn't want to be doing that. I didn't want to be part of a, of a program that was going to do that. So I've set up a program from the very beginning. I guess I'd say three primary things. Um, the first is to provide a good education. We're, you know, we're a state university. We're not a for-profit school. It's got a really strong uh, liberal arts education. And that can sound a little bit like, yeah, 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 whatever. You know, really what they want to do is learn about games. But a friend and I were talking about this recently. I love the phrasing he used, which was that um, it's important that you're able to do production with intention and reflection. So you're you're not just producing stuff. You're not just making levels. Yes, that's important. But you feel do it with good design intention and the ability to reflect on your design and other people's designs so you can make your designs better, the level that we're shooting for. So what we didn't want to do was to have students who would be able to get hired and you know, be QA or a level designer and top out in their career after the first three years. We really wanted to have students who could uh, be indies you know, and have their own studios or go work in mid-size or AAA studios really well from the, from the get-go. So the other two big things that we, that we focus on, uh, one is on understanding what are called soft skills. How do you work as part of a team? with people who don't think like you. So if you are more technical, you're going to work with people who are less technical. And you're there not going to understand why a certain file naming format in Git is so important. And they're going to screw it up. I say this because it's happened to, to, on teams that I've run in the past. And you know, the programmers are pulling their hair out because the artists are like, well, yeah, I, I changed the casing on the name, but who cares? And you know, that kind of thing matters. So being able to understand the different points of view and, and the different ways people work on, on a large team and doing that over the long haul. So you're not just working on a team of different people for two weeks. In our case, you're doing it for almost two years. So we have a um, soft skills, a lot of, you know, what's, what's the organization of a team? How does a team work? How does, how does game production work? All those things are a large part of our curriculum. The last thing then is what that leads to of, um, all of our, our students graduate and finished, very importantly, game, an original game, not just a clone of something else. So they, um, they learn how to pitch their games, they learn how to make prototypes, they do all this. Uh, at the fall, at the end of their, of their um, junior year, excuse me, the end of the fall semester and junior year, go through what we call our Shark Tank, which is teams that have been working for the fall semester on uh, new prototypes, new ideas, level industry vets um, who um, who they pitch for, thumbs up, thumbs down to their projects, um, and and these can be kind of scary people sometimes. Um, we've had Tim Vandenberg and uh, Tim Fowers and a bunch of other really good people. Um, I'm a bunch, I can't name them all because I'll, I'll forget somebody. I'm sure, but. Um, but really top-level people who can give, who not only know their stuff, but also can give good feedback. And then what we do from that is we have, say, eight teams that go into that Shark Tank, and maybe four of them will come out being able to continue their their games. The other people who were on projects that didn't go forward join those other four teams. 
And then for the next year and a half, for the next three semesters, they work on those games. The end result is that they have a game that is completed, that is, you know, is polished, is released on Steam or on Itch, uh, that they've marketed. And in addition to that, that they have formed their own company uh, because we have an arrangement with the school where they own all their own intellectual property. Cool project. One of, the, one of the things I have to really emphasize with the students is classes. They've had 14 years of learning how to be a really good student, and that's not going to really help them anymore. Now they need to learn how to be a good professional. So by the time they've graduated, uh, one of their producer who's hired a few of our people said that the students coming out of our program already have one to three years experience as a professional. That's how they, that's how they act. So um, they come out of our program knowing what it is to work on a team, frankly, knowing what it is to work with somebody who's kind of difficult on a team or work through difficult times because they've been working on the same project, one canceled project to another project in the course of almost two years. All of that, all those things together, having good soft skills and knowing what it is to work for the long haul on a project and finish something and polish it and get it out the door um, are the things I think are, are really the, the biggest things that we can do, be ready to not just have a good career, but to really be leaders in their career. It takes, it takes time, but we want to give them a jump start as, as much as we can. Yeah, that's pretty neat. Like the main struggle with, as you said, just the balance between uh, preparing students for the industry, which sounds like you think a lot about, but there's also the requirement of provide a good education. Uh, like even if it's not like basically focusing a lot on the fundamentals rather than, oh, right now this particular tool or this particular thing is the new hot thing in the industry and only teach that, like focus more on the, the core stuff. Um, and so, so as an example, all of our students, uh, although they're game design students, they're not, they're not computer science students, they all learn to program and they all learn Unity or Unreal. Um, but more than that, we teach them how to learn new systems and some of us will just say, okay, here's this new thing, go learn it just for your project. Okay, they have to know how to learn uh, and how to learn you know, under time pressure sometimes. Um, and a lot of that comes from this having a good, strong educational background. No extra credits, you know, great video series. And they have one on, so you want to be a game designer. At the very beginning of it, it says, a game designer, and the answer is everything. And that's, that's kind of true. Something about a lot of different things. And more than that, you have to be able and willing and interested to learn lots of new things. And, you know, if you... If you say, you know what, I learn, I know these languages and these and these practice these 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 packages, uh, and I know this part of I don't know medieval combat. I don't want to learn anything else. Career in in game designer and game development in general. Mm -hmm. uh, so this kind of ties into Kumu's question of if you only had three suggestions to give to your students or even your game dev colleagues, what would you say? One thing I always say is if you want to be a game designer or a game developer, make a game. Make a game, make a game, make a game. I, I'm kind of a broken record on this. <laughs> You've got to have a good, strong portfolio to show. No one, frankly, no one cares about your ideas. No one cares about your world building. You know, I love world building. I've, I've got uh, an extensive world that I've been working on for a few years now, kind of off and on. Who's going to care about it until I can show it in some kind of form that is whether it's a you know a book or a comic book or a game, it's got to be something that someone can see and, and experience directly rather than just me telling them about it. For students in particular, or for people who are trying to get started in their career, uh, having a portfolio that you can show, this is what I do well. Um, and, and there's a couple little interesting points there. Like, And this is one of the things I tell our, our art students. Kind of be uh, you know, a character artist good at texturing and that's you know you like the modeling and the texturing but you really are not that good at animation and rigging that's fine fully animated rig that you've modeled and textured on your on your portfolio but be sure you credit the other people who like i did not do the rigging on this someone else did or you know someone else did the rigging i did some of the animation don't try and say you did it all this is one of the things i see a lot from or 
somewhat too often from from rears is they'll try and take kind of take credit for things they didn't do yeah. and that's a really fast way to get booted out of an interview that among other things means you're not you're not a team player and you may not even really be that honest and that's that's not what anybody wants and there's this, um, there's a saying of like good leaders give credit rather than and I'll tell you, giving credit to other people is the easiest thing you can do. It's just, um, and, and it helps you and helps them. And yeah, it's it's getting the practice of, of doing, I think. Um, you know, it's funny. So just in terms of three things I would tell people, the first one is is make a game and make a good portfolio. Um, my students, I'm employed by, you know, the university to be a professor want to have a good career in games and if if you had to choose between having a really good portfolio and a really good degree i would say choose the portfolio every time far from it i think having a university degree in game design a good one is a a very good thing to have behind behind you but without a really strong portfolio and good games in it it's just not going to do you that much good um a, a good game or games plural behind you and, and a good portfolio. And then I think the other things kind of fall off of that. I mean, and they go right back to the things that are just thinking about our program. Learn something new all the time. I, I years ago, just kind of came up with the idea that I, I always wanted to suck at something. And unfortunately, in my case, it's easy. I have lots of things I'm terrible at. You know, we lived, before we lived in the Midwest, we lived uh, just south of San Francisco, really close to the beach. And so I learned to surf. I am a terrible surfer. I'm bad, um, but I loved it. I really, really enjoyed it. I'm, I'm maybe doing the classic old person thing now. I'm, I'm learning ballroom dance, and honestly, not all that excited about it, but I'm really enjoying it. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's a surprising amount of fun. Things I just had no idea about. So okay, let's go do that. So I think always having something in your life that you are just terrible at keeps you in a mindset of learning new things. And that I think also springs from having a, a good educational base that mindset of, of always, always looking for what's something new that I can learn. You know, I'm yeah. a book on quantum gravity right now. I'm never going to do physics, but I think I can probably pull that into a game at some point, you know? Um, um, always be learning, always be growing. Like, I think exactly. I, I have seen people who get really confident about a particular core skill set, but then they kind of get stuck there, and they like they ref, they are kind of hesitant to branch out and expand, and that's also kind of unhealthy. So, so at the Game Developers Conference, um, I had a yeah. bunch of friends. You know, as just sort of the vibe amongst people I knew. This is probably two thousand eight, two thousand nine. I finally. Uh, I think I finally figured out uh, MMOs and, you know, what now I want to look for an MMO or I'm pitching an MMO. And the, the oh, this is part 2007. People are like, no, MMOs are dead. Don't even try. Talking about, I just learned how to make these things. No, now it's all social games. So then 2008, 2009, they're like, okay, I finally got free to play in social games. You know, the, the social games like, no, too late. The social game things is passed. Now it's all free to play. 2010, 2011. Okay, I think I finally got a hold my a handle on, on free to play, and I understand it. Okay, but now that's kind of passed, and no one knows what comes next. <laughs> yeah, it's this constant thing, and if you're, if you're approaching this kind of grudgingly, like okay, I guess I got to learn about free to play, then you're always going behind. Now and, was and, the big thing was VR, and now that seems to be on its way out now. The thing right now is AR. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, there, there's a bunch of things like you can still do good, cool things with idle games, even though they've been around for a number of years now. You can still do a lot with free-to-play, for that matter. There are new mashups of those that are that are coming out. But if you can do a game that's free-to-play and has an AR component, that's going to be pretty interesting. You know, so anyway, that, I think the, the last thing, since uh, uh, Kumu asked for three things, I guess the third thing I would say is, Learn how to work with other people. This is, again, part of the, the, the thing we do with our program, but in our program, because I think it's really important, which is just uh, even if you're working on your own, if, you, if you're working as a student or as an indie, you've got to learn to work with other people. 
we, we had a, a student a number of years ago, uh, and he knows I tell the story, so I'm okay with it. Um, he was having a hard time. Um, really good programmer, and we were doing um, uh, peer reviews. So in our program, we do a lot of peer reviews. And frankly, if you're not doing your work or you're not doing that well, you can be fired off a team. So there is, that doesn't mean you fail the class necessarily, but it's certainly not a good thing. Anyway, he was not fired off a team, but he was having kind of a hard time. We were able to help him out, and he came back and came roaring back and did great work. But at the time, he said, this is the first time I've been on a team where not everyone was a programmer. He said, you know, these people think differently. By these people, I mean like artists and designers. <laughs> Our time with that. These people. <laughs> but yeah. These people, exactly. Um, if you're uh, an artist, find some programmers to work with. If you're a designer, find artists and programmers. You've got to find different people to work with who aren't like you, who just baffle you sometimes with how they think about things. Yeah, and even if you in, understand that, even if you understand that on like a cognitive level, it's one thing to actually be there and be like, oh, they do think differently and to actually feel that difference and to work with it. The, the trial by fire of that is same game together for a year and there's some big crisis, something fails. Uh, you know, two different people on the team will approach it from completely different points of view. Okay, I can't let my personality get in the way here. I can't let our personality differences get in the way. We've got to solve this problem. When I see that happen, I see it happen frequently with our students. And that is one of the, the sort of biggest joys that I have, really, because they are able to get out of their own way and say, what do we want this, this game to be? A professional, really. Yeah, and as, as a teacher, you have to be patient with students making what may be seen as like obvious mistakes. Like, uh, I once was a TA for a class, and there was one team where they were hung up on something, and I was like, what are you guys hung up on? And it turned out that there was this argument going on about what code formatting style they wanted to use, like tabs or spaces, a bracket at the beginning or at the end of the line. <laughs> And I'm like, oh my God, this is, I had to like take a step back and like, don't worry, these are students, it's all part of the learning process. And so I had to like walk them through, like you can either, like just like help them imagine the future. I'm like, you can solve this now and, it could, and it'll be fine. Or you can keep messing with this and it'll, it'll threaten the entire project <laughs> and just help, and help them to arrive at the conclusion themselves. So I had... Uh... I'll leave nameless for now. Uh, two young designers working across the hall from me, who sort of nominally worked for me. Something petty and stupid. Having it was like tabs versus spaces. <laughs> yeah. I, I I said something like, "You guys." I was like walking down the hall and I, I stopped in their office. And I said, "You guys, this is dumb." I said, "This is like arguing about whether the board could take the Death Star." Totally the board. And they said, "Are you kidding? The Death Star destroys planets." And I just backed out of their office because I was like, that's... It got... <laughs> your, your analogy <laughs> turned into the next argument. <laughs> that I have with our students now is that, like with this, this one student who was with people who weren't programmers, I would much rather see that in someone who's 20 or 22 years old than someone who's 30 or 32 years old. Um, we've had students that have been fired off a team. Or who have had a, a PIP, or something that's common in industry, a personal improvement plan. When you're not doing so well for whatever reason, your management comes to you and say, "Hey, uh, we need to put you on a PIP." And and the, it's really like a a yellow flag because what it means is if you don't improve on this, you're out. You're out the door. Um. Uh. So what we have to put people, you know, we'll sit down with me and the other person and put someone on a PIP or even fire them. And that can be crushing. But if they can come back from it, far, far better off. Uh, and, and the same thing is true when we cancel projects. We, we had a project uh, a couple of years ago that we really should have canceled sometime before, but we let it go and let it go. Just not going anywhere. We got to cancel this thing. And it was really emotional for the guys involved. 
Afterward, though, they really bounced back. In particular, the the guy who was the leader of that project went on to be sort of the project manager of another project to take all the stuff he learned on the first one and avoid a lot of the same mistakes on this other project. And he really became a, a, a very strong uh, producer as a result of that. A few hard times can be really good for us. We just yeah. want to do it in kind of as safe as manner as, as possible. Yeah, so that people can make all these mistakes without threatening their livelihood or exactly. their reputation. Um, so we're out of time. Uh, thanks for this amazing AMA. Uh, and just to emphasize again, like the first point that you made, to make a game, make a game, make a game. <laughs> so many of the points that we talked about are pretty much lessons that are best learned or best stick in your head when you're facing them, That's when you're literally working through those problems. Uh, and that, only, that can only happen if you're making a game. <laughs> Another way to look at the same thing is when it's 2 o'clock in the morning and you're thinking, why am I working on this? game isn't just like a big magician's reveal it's a it's a million little tiny tasks that have to get done and i think it's really important to remember when you're thick of making a game why you're doing it and and that the end result really is worth it uh even though it may not seem like it at the time <laughs> when it, when things are everything's broken nothing's going right yeah, everyone everyone always wants to have made a game less people actually <laughs> want to be making it but personally, that feeling of actually having made a game, it's, it's a pretty good feeling. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a great feeling. And, and then another saying that I like a lot is anything finished is better than everything unfinished. It doesn't matter how crappy you think it is. It's better than everything else that other people aren't making. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. I'll let you get back to your day now. Thanks for stopping by. Bye.